Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, the host of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Our special guest today is Dr. Linda Shu. She's not only a medical doctor, but she's also trained as a chef. Dr. Shu is the founder and director of Thrive Kitchen, a teaching kitchen at a large national healthcare system where she educates patients on cooking cravably delicious, healthy meals. A practicing internist for more than a decade, Dr. Shu made the journey from the clinic into the kitchen to more effectively support the many patients that she saw struggling with lifestyle-related medical issues. And this is despite they're also taking medications. Noticing the gap in conventional Western medical training to address nutrition, and in fact, this is interesting, only a quarter of medical schools in the U.S. offer nutrition classes to their students. Dr. Shu formalized her own culinary education, attending San Francisco Cooking School before staging in the kitchen of a Michelin-starred restaurant, Maraud, in San Francisco, and obtaining a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University. For her first cookbook, Spice Box Kitchen, Dr. Shu shares her uniquely informed perspective on food and medicine which is the perfect topic for a show dedicated to exploring the food medicine continuum. Using the vast world of spices and their health benefits as her guide, she takes readers on a journey through worldly and healthful flavors. It's so great to have you on the show, Linda. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you about this. Great. Well, I want to just go ahead and dive straight into the science. What can you share with us about the health benefits of a plant-based or vegetable forward cooking? Yeah, I'm, you know, this is my bread and butter, literally. (laughs) Um, And I love talking about it because I think a lot of the time in medicine and in science, we're looking for the latest and the greatest, you know, advances, things that require modern technology. But The beauty of this is that food is something that we all consume on a daily basis. And since the beginning of time, it's been used to enhance our health. Um, And so I think as we move away from what we knew just in our families growing up, we lose a lot of that and we lose a lot of our own power to feel well and to improve our health in ways that make sense to us. Um, And so one of those things is actually just simply eating your vegetables, right? So I think the first thing I want to kind of clear up is how I define vegetable forward and plant forward because people use these terms in many different ways. Um, This can be anything from completely whole foods plant-based with no animal products at all, ranging to, you know, uh, some plants, you know, combined with some animal products and then all the way to eating kind of everything, the omnivorous diet. Um, But throughout this continuum from no animal products to, you know, maybe even a good deal of animal products, we know that plants have many benefits for our health. You know, they contain things that are not found in animal products at all, antioxidants, vitamins, um, and importantly, fiber. So these are the three substances which really uh, make the difference in how eating more plants, fruits and vegetables can in, uh, help our health. Um, there was a really large study called the Adventist Health Study that looked at, you know, like 60 or 80,000 people over many years. And they looked at this continuum, which I thought was a really great way to do the study, right? So if you went again from the extreme of no animal products at all, the vegans out there, even with no added um, oil, 
oils, um, all the way to the omnivore diet. We see very nicely, um, they looked at outcomes like type 2 diabetes and obesity. Um, it's actually a continuum. It mirrors it. So the more animal products you have, the higher risk of type 2 diabetes, the higher risk of obesity and obesity-related diseases. Um, and we know that these are the diseases that affect us all. Our number one killer around the world is heart disease. That's very directly related to diet. Type 2 diabetes, we know, is directly related to diet. Um, and there are actually um, you know, certain cancers that we also are getting more evidence for that diet makes a very big difference. And so, um, you know, this is really fascinating to me. It, it also tells me that as an individual, we can make this choice, you know, if we go all the, if we want to be very strict or have to be very strict with our diets because of our individual health issues or our family history, we can go to that extreme or we can go in between. Um, but no matter what, it's eating more vegetables that actually gives us those health benefits. That's great. And I love, I love the concept of choice that it really is a choice, but to make that choice requires knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we tend to miss a lot of in the Western dietary complex is that at least in my, in my case, the way I was taught how to cook as a kid, mm -hmm. um, was involved a lot of prepackaged foods, a lot of things that you just take a box of this, you add a, a bag of that or a can of this and there were vegetables, but these were, you know, soaked in sodium and, um, you know, just maybe not the same health benefit as, as a fresh vegetable. So mm -hmm. what advice do you give to your patients that really perhaps don't know how to cook with fresh ingredients. Yeah, so this is actually a really important point. I feel like we grew up kind of the same way. You know, mm -hmm. at least for me growing up in the 70s, that was the kind of heyday of processed foods which were introduced into our country in the 50s mm -hmm. as a way to, you know, basically allow women to work, right? We wanted mm -hmm. convenience. But that led to honestly, all of our health disasters right now. Yeah. Um, you know, so processed foods, they seem like a miracle, right? You could just come home, put it together. I remember even in my home ec classes, remember home ec? <laughs> like we yes, don't even have that Yes, now. I had yeah. <laughs> but even home ec, I remember that we were using a lot of processed ingredients to put together. And I'm not saying that, that there isn't a place for that. But truly, I understand people have different time pressures um, and have economic pressures and that um, sometimes there's not a choice. But what I'm talking about is most of the time, the vast majority of time, how are we going to eat to feel good and to be healthy? Um, and so the problem with processed foods, even if we, even if we start from that point, reducing those or choosing widely amongst, you know, highly processed foods is a very good starting point for most people before we even say, Hey, you should eat no animal products at all. So I want to acknowledge that again. I, yeah. I know there are many reasons why people eat the way that they do. Um, but in terms of, you know, how do you get people to cook who don't know how to cook in a way, you know, cooking from scratch? Um, I also want to talk about you. There are some ways of processing food that can be good for you. Frozen fruits and vegetables are very economical. They're very handy to have on hand. I have some frozen fruits and vegetables in my freezer at all times because there are times you can't get to the market. Mm -hmm. There are times when you won't have fresh fruits and vegetables. And so that's a good start. And you know, some people think, oh, that they can't be as good for you, they're frozen. But actually, um, 
most fruits and vegetables are flash frozen around the time that they're picked, and that actually preserves their vitamin content better than some fresh fruits and vegetables that might look okay, but have been sitting around for a while. So the closest to harvesting, the better the nutrition. So I'm a fan of recommending that as a first step for people who are used to processed foods in their cooking. Yeah, that's a great tip and and super relevant because you're right. You can always have some of those frozen goodies in the freezer, yeah. you know, yeah. um, on hand so that you can have um, more vegetable content in your meal. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And definitely in the beginning of the pandemic, I would, you know, everybody actually, <laughs> everybody was stocking their freezers. It was an interesting and frightening time for us, but it was a reminder that if you have frozen things, you can cook. Um, and so then the next step of how do you get people to cook? I think, you know, the important way to do it, well, that's why I teach cooking. That, that was actually my whole thing. Like people don't know how to cook. You tell them you should and shouldn't eat this, but if they don't know how to put it together in a way that makes sense to them, that's easy for them, that they can do in half an hour after work, they're not going to do as much as they know it's important to them. You know, I know that it's not that people don't want to cook sometimes, sometimes they don't, but, but a lot of the time it's really like, how do I do it? So I think there, you know, definitely there's a lot of YouTube videos out there. There are many ways that are free that people can access, access that can, you know, very easily teach them how to cook in very simple ways. And I want people to know that it doesn't have to be fancy and it doesn't have to be difficult and it does not have to involve a lot of expensive equipment with any sort of heat source, whether that's a stove or even a hot plate. Um, and you know, a knife, just even one knife, a cutting board and some simple ingredients people can cook in a way that can enhance their health. Because again, my whole point is just eat more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Um, whatever you do with that is going to improve your health and use that to kind of displace the processed foods that aren't good for any of us. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, during the pandemic, I've, I've, I mentioned before we started the call, I have, I have a household of teenagers. <laughs> so we have four <laughs> kids at home and three, three teenagers. And, you know, I never learned how to cook until I was out of college. And I know that most of my college students don't know how to cook, even the ones that are really passionate about food and take mm -hmm. my food course. Um, it's just, it can be really um, intimidating to, to start this process. And I think what you're saying about starting with small steps of trying some simple dishes is so important. And now we have a rotating meal schedule at home with the kids where they cook two meals a week. And often, you know, the first time they make it, it requires some extra help and, you know, supervising if they have questions about the recipes. But you know, I would say to the audience, get those kids in the kitchen, like give them the opportunity, especially at a time when we're home with them so much to really start learning how to, how to, how to cook their vegetables and, and grains and, and beans and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that is such an important point. You know, we have become this, actually several generations of people who don't really know how to cook. And again, I think there's just a lot of fear around it. But I always say, don't worry, there, you it's, you know, it's not going to be life or death. The worst thing that can happen is that maybe it tastes bad and maybe you burn it. And those are the only two cases where you, you may not want to consume it. But even if you make a mistake, let's say too much salt, 
mm-hmm. too much sugar, whatever it is, there are actually ways that you can correct that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to, we don't want to waste food, right? I'm not a fan of food waste. Absolutely. Um, but the only way to learn is to experiment and to make mistakes. And, you know, even when I teach my cooking classes, something goes wrong every time with either <laughs> me or with one of my students, but that's actually a learning opportunity, which I know as a professor, you understand too, right? Yes. That is a chance to really drive that lesson home by learning how to correct the mistake that you might've made. That's great. Well, one of the kind of other tools that many of us have in our kitchen are our spice cabinets. And I would bet that many of us have spices that perhaps we bought for one random recipe and it's been in there for a bit. And you're like, how do you use this in any other recipe? And, and really what I love about your book, and I don't know if you have a copy nearby where you can show us, Oh, beautiful. <laughs> it's that spice box kitchen. It's such yeah. a, a beautifully illustrated and the, the recipes are just mouthwatering. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to working my way through some of these, especially some like the gado gado. I'm a huge fan of gado gado of Indonesian um, kind of mixed dish and, and the salads and salads are also a great place for, for teenagers and new, new cooks, I think to, yes. to start. Yeah. Yeah. But going to those spices kind of how can we think about spices in a new way? How do we integrate spices into our cuisine and what do they bring to our health? Oh, there's, you know, one of my favorite topics, which is why my book is called Spice Box Kitchen, because spices were our first medicine, right? And this, I'm sure you know all about this um, in your profession, um, that this is what we had before we developed pharmaceuticals. And in fact, spices are the basis for some actual pharmaceuticals, right? So that's what we do. We find what works or what people knew worked before, and then maybe make them more potent and easier to get, easier to deliver um, into our bodies through perhaps a supplement. Uh, That said, I'm much more a fan of integrating spices and integrating foods into our diet as a really holistic way of basic nutrition. Um, So as some examples of spices, which we've always used throughout, you know, the millennia or we meaning people around the world Mm -hmm. um, as medicine, turmeric is probably one that many people are familiar with. So that's that root that looks a little bit like ginger on the outside. I guess it's, it's a rhizome, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's bright orange when you cut into it. It has this earthy aroma. Yeah. Very earthy. Um, And then it gets used um, and dried and ground into a powder. That's how a lot of people will use it, although you can use it certainly fresh, um, sliced up, just like you might use ginger in your cooking, like in a stir fry. Um, But in the powder form, that's what gives that really beautiful and very staining (laughs) yellow hue to curry powders. Um, So many people are familiar with this. So turmeric is a very potent anti-inflammatory. And in fact, it works in much the same way that ibuprofen and other anti-inflammatory medications work. So it can be great for your joint pain. as an anti-inflammatory, we're learning a lot more in medicine these days that inflammation is actually the cause of all of our chronic diseases. And if we can curb that a little bit, then we can really reduce the effects of those diseases. Again, things like heart disease, other cardiovascular disease like stroke, diabetes, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that, you know, are going to get us basically. Yeah. Um, and so um, by having turmeric in our, in our diets, that can actually reduce our inflammation. So it's not just the inflammation that we feel in our achy, creaky joints. It's actually the inflammation that can lead to chronic disease. So that's one of my favorite examples of how something that tastes good and, and, you know, 
adds flavor to our food, adds color to our food, and perhaps brings in, you know, other parts of the world and other cultures into our kitchens also has very powerful health benefits. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, I was actually um, lecturing this morning to my class on different, um, on the concept of oxidative stress and uh -huh. inflammation and antioxidants that we can integrate in our diet. And turmeric, of course, came up as, as one of those plants of, of high interest. And I, I wonder what you what your thoughts are on this. We know that turmeric and curcumin, which is one of the active compounds in turmeric, actually it, it has low bioavailability on its own. So if you take just a supplement of turmeric or a spoonful of turmeric, a lot of it just kind of goes to the body. But when it's combined with certain other ingredients, most specifically black pepper, and it needs to be freshly ground black pepper because that's richest in a compound known as piperine, you increase the bioavailability of, of curcumin throughout the body. And that just blows my mind is like, because this is all part of, you know, the traditional cuisine yeah. where black pepper and turmeric are from, and this melding of spices actually has a whole other level of health benefits and it tastes good too. So I wonder if you yeah. could talk a bit about any of, any of those concepts that have kind of entranced you as a physician as well. Yeah, no, I love that example. And I think that's a very good point. And in fact, of course, some manufacturers of supplements have, you know, basically capitalized on that and they combine those two mm -hmm. black pepper and, and the curcumin into a capsule. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so again, better if you have it fresh in your cooking though, in terms yeah. of all of that. But I think that I, I love this concept that again, this ancient wisdom, which may not have been articulated as such, but just basically passed down through recipes has, has been there for a really long time. You know, a lot of that comes from where a lot of spices are grown in, in Asia, particularly in India and in the traditions of Ayurveda, which I, I won't pretend to have any expertise mm -hmm. in at all. Um, but Ayurveda really fascinates me. And of course, I'd love to learn more about it because it really truly uses food as medicine. And mm -hmm. it uses these concepts and these recipes that look at, you know, what what is there in terms of our spice cabinet? What is there in terms of foods that we can combine in different ways that will enhance your health? Um, and so there, there's really a lot there. So I, I really like looking at kind of this ancient wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's and you know how do we recognize ancient wisdom today? in many cases, it's these spice blends. How do you make your curry blends? Like, you know, and, and different regions have their own blends of different spices. And yeah. um, you do a beautiful job of showing and illustrating your book how to bring in different spices into your, into your diet. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about kind of what inspired you to create these recipes? I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, they're, they're visually just beautiful dishes. It makes my mouth water looking at them, but I, <laughs> but, but besides their beauty, kind of what drove you to, to write this book and um, create these recipes? Yeah. I mean, that really goes back to like from birth, my love of food and my sort of adventurous spirit and curiosity about other cultures. Um, so I've, I've always loved food. I, I, probably could be described as some of a, of a picky eater at some point, like all, all kids are. Um, and I actually grew up in a really small town in a semi-rural area on Eastern Long Island. And I could have had actually a very sheltered existence growing up that way. Um, but um, because my parents worked at a national laboratory there, we always had international visitors. So we had visiting scientists from around the world my whole life. And we would have these potlucks at my house nice. and people would bring things either actually from their own culture or actually from other people's culture. So all of these international scientists actually had 
themselves been exposed to many other cultures through their work. Mm-hmm. And that got me really curious. And, you know, when something tasted good, I wanted to know how do we make this? Because I was in such a remote place, we didn't have restaurants that had mm-hmm. any of these foods. So if I wanted it, I had to figure out how to make it. Um, and so I think that was the beginning. Wow. Um, yeah. And because um, I'm the daughter of immigrants, my parents are from Taiwan, um, and the wife of an immigrant who's from Trinidad in the Caribbean, I think I've just always surrounded myself by people who just, as part of their upbringing, without even knowing about it, had a lot to bring to the, literally the table um, <laughs> from other places around the world. You know, and I, I studied anthropology in college, uh, medical anthropology, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I studied abroad. I was in Southeast Asia in college. I worked in China before medical school. I, I'm just really, I, I think I live medical anthropology, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because I, my, my, favorite way to approach that is through food, visiting markets, talking to people about their food, learning to cook their food, and really appreciating and enjoying other people's food. That was the basis for, you know, what I like to eat and how I develop recipes and the flavors in them. And then I thought, you know, in our multicultural environment, you can't just tell people to eat quinoa and kale. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to make no sense to a lot of people. Although I do try to get people from all cultures to think about what is the equivalent of kale? You know, is it some other green vegetable? What is the equivalent of quinoa in your culture? What do you eat? Is it brown rice? Is it some other whole grain? Because that is your key. That is what your ancestors knew enhanced their health and wellness the best. And let's, let's, let's play with that. You know, let's figure out how to make that part of your diet, reclaim your heritage, whatever that is. Or if that isn't your heritage and you feel like my heritage is, you know, bread and butter, reach out to other cultures. It makes food much more interesting. And so in my book, which, you know, travels the world through your kitchen, I put, I play with spices because spices are very accessible. You can get them even in small quantities, you know, Ideally, in in bulk bins, which we don't have access to now through the pandemic, but many um, spice manufacturers sell them in very small quantities. Try them. You you can't really fail with them. You either like them or you don't like them. And so that's why I spent a long time in the book, in that beginning section, going over a spice glossary and also talking about how do we use them? Because I think a lot of people buy spice, use a teaspoonful in one recipe, and then it's there, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's there aging away, losing potency, losing flavor in your spice cabinet. Um, And so if you learn to experiment with them in different ways, then you really have the power of introducing more interesting flavor into your food and potentially other health benefits. That's great. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note, too, when we talk about spices and spiciness, it's not just about heat. It's oh, yeah. all of these other flavors um, that that come through. And um, one of my favorite things to do is I, I love um, Indian and kind of um, Indonesian and Asian cuisine. And um, they're, you know, I really try and play with putting some different blends together. And so like, I almost have like my Middle Eastern mix and my mix for different things. And it's, and you can kind of, you know, as you explain in the book is experiment with things to see what flavors you really enjoy and then include those in your dishes. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty advanced of you to make your own spice blends. I think that's great. <laughs> well, I am a plant chemist, so maybe I do have yeah, an advantage. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, but, but that's the best way, actually, to make it to your taste, right? And, and that's what I try to tell the reluctant beginning cook about cooking, that this is the way to eat what you like, actually, to make it exactly the way that you like it. Um, I think another kind of basic tip about spices is that it's a way to reduce our reliance on salt, added sodium in our diets. Okay. Right, because a lot of the, I, I, there is definitely room for salt, but really just a pinch is often what we need to enhance the flavor of our food, of our ingredients, and also to bring out the flavor of spices. But if you have spices, you're going to find the salt is actually the most boring part of your, your yeah. food. Um, and so I think it's really fun. And I do have some recipes in the book for making certain spice blends. So there's um, Trinidadian curry powder, which is a very specific blend of spices for curry in Trinidad. Um, I have one for dukkha, which is a Middle Eastern uh, spice seed and nut blend. Um, but again, people can mix and match. Once you get courageous, confident, and bold, you can make your own. And I actually would love to see what people do with their my recipes. I would love to see people change them. You know, my advice about recipes is try to follow it to the T the first time to understand what it's supposed to be like. Um, but then after that, switch it out with what you have or what you like. That's what recipes are for. That's great advice. Well, um, and this is, this is all fantastic because these are, these are things that, you know, really make, uh, healthy cooking accessible. And, um, I wanted to ask some questions about, your your path to this point of both having professional training um, in nutrition and um, as a chef, but also being a Western trained physician. Mm -hmm. And you don't find many Western trained physicians that are also <laughs> actually like chefs. I mean, so you're really unique in that perspective. And I, I just, I, I'd like to see how, how that happened and how do you find this is useful in your clinical practice with your patients and maybe give us some examples of, of which patients were, you know, what types of, of diseases um, can benefit the most from these dietary changes. All right. Yeah. No, I, I realize that I'm what people might call a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> And I'd like to describe my path as I took my first cooking class, which was a French cooking class in a French summer program when I was seven. Wow. And then it was almost 40 years later that I actually went to culinary school. Um, and in between, I honestly didn't know or didn't think there was a place for cooking in medicine. You know, I actually knew from quite a young age that um, I, I was going to be a doctor, I think quite young, and, and maybe there was some... Uh, parental influence on that decision. <laughs> um, but it, and I knew I loved food, as I said, from a very young age. And I thought there were two separate things, right? Like most people do. Yeah. Um, and then I practiced internal medicine and primary care for a good decade before I started to honestly feel a little bit frustrated. Like I keep giving the same advice and prescribing the same medications to my patients who had struggled with their weight or had type 2 diabetes or are approaching that or their mm -hmm. blood pressure or their cholesterol, their heart disease, right? These are all the things that we all know are directly related to our diets. And they weren't really, I couldn't really help them get it, get 
make get better or make a change. They were getting frustrated too. And it wasn't fun for either of us for me to write, you know, higher and higher doses of, of medications or for them to take higher doses, you know, and I thought there's gotta be a better way. What is this better way? And then I literally went to a CME conference, a continuing medical education conference mm-hmm. called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And that was literally that light bulb moment, which before that I thought was this mythical thing that didn't really happen to people. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I cook. I love food. Oh, food is medicine. Wait a minute. Is this really what I need to do? And it just happened to be that at that conference, one of my colleagues who was running a study on how to help people who had difficulty controlling their hypertension and like everything these days was based in technology was actually using, you know, kind of remote monitoring to help Mm -hmm. people figure out what they did during the day that made their blood pressure better or worse. At that time, the study didn't include a cooking class, but he was like, you love to cook. Do you want to teach a cooking class? And this is literally five days after that conference, I taught my first cooking class and I didn't know what I was doing, although it went really well. And I learned that I loved it and I could do it actually. Mm -hmm. And so it started back then. And that was in 2012. And so, and then I thought, okay, what else can I do? You know, not every, I can't always teach a cooking class every day. I can't teach cooking literally in my clinic room, but I can certainly talk about food. I can ask people what they eat. And this was actually my brilliant idea. I can write recipes on my prescription pads. So that's what I started doing. Yeah. And so one of my first prescriptions was for kale chips. <laughs> and That's how great. much more fun and kind of crazy, but crazy gets people's attention, right? Yeah. yeah. Then to do something like that. And now that we use electronic medical records and use electronic prescriptions, I actually have recipes that I put through the electronic medical records and can send to my patients. That's um, amazing. And so, you know, I'm kind of trying to take the best of modern technology and ancient wisdom my medical training, my my nutrition knowledge, and my love of cooking, and my real desire to help people where they are in a way that they understand that's non-intimidating and honestly empowers them, right? Telling people what to do never really works. It works to some degree, but yeah. no one likes it, and then they lose it. They give up because it, it's not them. But mm-hmm. if I ask the simple question of, what do you like to eat? What did you eat for breakfast? What's your go-to lunch? And for the kale chips, Tell me really, what are you snacking on, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then I can work with that and say, you know what? I get that. I like to eat chips too, but kale chips are going to be better for you. And, you know, you're going to get all this fiber. You're going to get antioxidants. You're going to get all these nutrients out of it that you're not getting from your potato chips. And I, I, and trust me, you're going to like them. And I can't tell you that, again, this is not rocket science. This is not brain surgery to use a medical metaphor for this, but I had probably the most feedback from those first days of experimenting with how to write recipe prescriptions for people than I had in all the 10 years prior. I got messages from my patients saying, doctor, I tried everything with all my other doctors for decades. I could never get a control of my weight. I could never get control of my blood pressure. I could never you know, control any of these things until I started looking at my food in a different way and understanding that I had the power to control my health through what I ate. And so, you know, that's how wow. my, my two go-to recipe prescriptions were kale chips for people who like salty snacks and banana nice cream, you know, using frozen bananas to whip up into a soft serve substitute for people who said that, you know, oh, I kind of eat, I, I kind of eat yeah. ice cream every night. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, 
And so it's, it really was actually um, building upon the skills that I had in my training as a primary care doctor of actually listening to patients, patient interviewing, asking them, what, what do you do? And where can I move you, you know, push, push you along your journey just a little bit gently. And then you come back and tell me what was hard about that? What was good about that? And then we'll take the next step. So starting back then in my early days in 2012 um, to where I am now, that's what I've continued to do. I've continued to refine it. Um, in 2016, after four years of doing community cooking classes and giving these recipe prescriptions to my patients, I decided to take some time off from being a doctor and go to culinary school. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and, and I went because I'd always wanted to do that. Um, you know, and as my friend said, that this is a, a type A midlife crisis. <laughs> Because <laughs> culinary school is not really relaxing, um, but I loved it. Uh, but I also went in, you know, because it was based upon the French culinary tradition that most culinary schools focus on. It wasn't like a healthy cooking, nutrition-based culinary school. I, I did know that I wanted to know three things from that. I wanted to know how to basically use all the techniques in the kitchen, because technique is a great way, once people master techniques, simple techniques, to cook faster and better right? And that's what we all want. Um, I wanted to learn more about spices and more, more about how to make food taste good. And that's not, you know, about using all the butter and cream that was definitely there as part of my training, but learning how to use spices and learning when and when to use them, how to use them, how to bring out the most flavor out of them. And same thing for how to salt food, not to use more salt, but to use it in the right ways and times in your cooking to enhance flavor in food. Um, and then finally, I wanted to learn how to be a better teacher. You can, just like with any sort of teaching, you can have the knowledge, but it's a very different skill to be a good teacher. And so I knew that I, I was a good cook. Um, and I knew that I was a pretty good cooking teacher because I've been doing it for a few years already, but I knew there'd be better ways of learning how to teach cooking. And since I knew I was going to be starting, um, a, basically a cooking school for patients that I wanted to learn from the best. And I had wonderful instruction in my cooking school, which is San Francisco cooking school. That's fan what a journey. That's just so fantastic. I mean, this is this is all kind of under the umbrella of what we would call integrative medicine, right? If you're really but you know, it shouldn't be labeled as an other form of medicine. It is medicine. Food is medicine. Our diets, if you're prescribing patients medicines for, you know, for high blood pressure or for diabetes, but they continue to eat foods that are contributing to the disease. There's only so much so far those pharmacological agents can go. Like you have to find that balance in, on both ends. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. 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 And um, I, I want to point out a few key things for our listeners about this. You know, one is that, and, and people know this, no pill is going to make you feel good, right? It's not going to make you <laughs> feel better. That blood pressure pill doesn't actually make you feel better. Um, you know, your diabetes pill isn't going to make you feel better while it might improve the numbers that we're measuring, but food makes people feel better. This is, and it's immediate, you know, I, even if people, I, I like to point out too, that what, what my book about and my take, my book is about and my take on food as medicine is not about diet. It's not a diet book. I very intentionally didn't include um, calorie counts in my book mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that's not what I want people to focus on. I want pe people to focus on, wow, this vegetable that I never tried tastes so good. Or, you know, in one of my first cooking classes, I taught how one of the recipes for Brussels sprouts, um, which I call gateway Brussels sprouts because it was the gateway to eating like this for that patient. Um, 
is that you know people say, wow, I, I hated Brussels sprouts before, but with this recipe, I love them. I can't get enough. And that should be the focus. Like, I love to eat this, therefore I'm going to eat this. And these are all things that I want people to eat more of. Um, and so, and then they say, you know, once I start started eating like this, I cut back on meat, I cut out that processed food, I feel so much better. I have so much more energy. My, my back doesn't ache anymore. Whatever it is, my mood is better. We know mm-hmm. that there are effects of food on all of these dimensions of our health and well-being. That to me is wellness. Wellness is not all these things are being packaged and sold these days. Wellness is I take care of myself in ways that make sense to me. I feel better. And maybe as a side effect, you might lose some weight. It depends on, you know, if you have to and where you were with this. But you're going to feel better if you use food in the, these ways as medicine from your own kitchen. Um And the other thing I want to point out is that only food has been shown to actually reverse heart disease. So we know that you can get, you know, uh, a cardiac catheterization, an angiogram, angioplasty, and that can clean out your blood vessels. There is also a study that showed that if you follow a whole foods plant-based diet without any added oil, um, any supplemental fats aside from things like avocados, nuts, natural sources Mm -hmm. of fat, that can do the same thing. That can actually clean out your blood vessels. It's a crazy thing, right? That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's exciting to see as, as more and more science in this field emerges and, um, you know, I'm fascinated with the gut microbiome and how all these foods and not just the chemicals in our foods, the natural plant chemicals, but also fiber, how all these different elements come together to create a state of health. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the microbiome is fascinating. So we're learning, you know, I think the the latest things that I'm fascinated about in medical research, again, is not technology based, but is again, this ancient stuff, which we do need technology to study and understand, Mm -hmm. but it's stuff like fiber. It's probiotics, the microbiome inflammation. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that your microbiome changes within days of changing how you eat days you know fiber that's 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 insane you know most people think it takes months i have to do all this stuff for months before my body's going to get healthier but that's not the case and um one of the things that i do with uh, my medical center is annually we have this three-week plant power opportunity is what we've called it at first we we debated between calling it the plant i think we called it the plant-based challenge because some people like a challenge i like a challenge Um, (laughs) but then we thought oh is it more positive to say opportunity i'm like okay we can be positive too and i i think there are two camps with that but what it is is we encourage people just like i do in my book to just eat more vegetables some of them some people will go totally plant-based with this depending on where they started some people just eat, you know, one more serving of vegetables and where they started, but we, we actually measure their biometric markers before and after, um, their weight, their blood pressure, and interestingly, their lab results, their fasting lipid panel, their fasting blood sugar, and their hemoglobin A1C, um, their average blood sugar, which we are taught actually, you know, measures your average blood sugar over two to three months. But in the several years that I've been doing this challenge, people actually have improvements even in that number after three weeks. I'm wow. not even kidding. And, you know, this is this is not done as like a controlled study at all. This is anecdotal, but but it's real. It's there. If if we want to look at numbers, we can look at these numbers and it's it is so powerful. And this is without changing medication. This is even without changing exercise. I mean, it's crazy powerful. 
That's amazing. Well, um, I'd love to leave our listeners with a challenge. Um, is there, is there a challenge or an opportunity that you could offer those of us? Let's, let's go with something like the late night snacks. Cause I've also yeah. been guilty of this, of watching yeah. TV and mindless eating of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Can you give one example of a way that we can swap that out for a more healthful, um, dish? For sure. So I actually want to show you my book again and talk a little bit about the structure of it, because one of the sections, which a lot of books don't do, is um, including stocking your pantry. And that includes making your own snacks. Um, and I talked about the kale chips. So again, this is I'm going to talk about those two people, the salty snacker and the sweet snacker. Um, and in this book for the salty snacker, I have kale chips with lots of variations with flavors from around the world. So that is, even if you're eating mindlessly while watching Netflix at night, you're not going to overdo it with kale chips, actually, that Mm -hmm. you make yourself at home. Um, I actually don't want anyone to go out and buy them. I think the ones that are manufactured don't taste that good, and they have a lot of other stuff. So make your own kale chips. It'll take 10 minutes. That's it. You've got 10 minutes. While you're, while you're scrolling through Netflix to see what you want to watch. Um, and then for the ice cream eaters, um, you can definitely do, and I don't actually have, I don't believe I have that in, in this book. It didn't make it. There are actually 175 recipes in here, and I couldn't include everything. Um, but that is simply when you've got those overripe bananas um, that you might otherwise make into banana bread. It seems like everybody was making banana bread during the pandemic, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead, you can save some of those to slice and then freeze in an airtight bag in your freezer. And then when they're frozen, you just put them into either a high-speed blender or a food processor, and you've got soft serve. And then as a bonus, put your favorite spices, put your cardamom, your cinnamon, cinnamon, um, or even some other kind of spice. You could put turmeric in it, actually, if you wanted to. Add some nuts for some healthy fats and for some texture, and you've got a sundae. Add some berries to add more fiber and antioxidants and other vitamins. That is a great opportunity to take the snack that you mindlessly you know, consume at night because you enjoy it and we all need some comfort and turn it into something that will actually add beneficial things to your diet and enhance your health. That sounds amazing. I actually have some overripe bananas on my countertop right now. I'm going to try that tonight. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shu, for coming on the show. This has been so delightfully informative. And uh, before I wrap up, I I also wanted to ask, um, can you give us some information on the places where our audience can find you? Are you on Twitter or Facebook? Yes, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm everywhere. Twitter yeah. and Instagram at Spicebox Travels. And I'm on Facebook and YouTube at um, The Doctor's Spicebox. Great. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, best of luck with all of your exciting initiatives. Um, your patients are really lucky to have, um, have your skill set at hand. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. It was so great talking to you. And I I love your podcast and I I enjoy learning more about your work. So I'm, I'm so glad to meet you. It's great. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Be sure to follow us, like us on uh, Apple Podcasts, and also check out our YouTube channel where we have the video recordings from many of our episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.
time.